Thanks for joining us for our Berean Bible Church podcast. With the conclusion of our Investigating Jesus series, here's our teaching pastor, Justin Bluer. Um, everyone ready for Independence Day weekend? Who's got fireworks ready to go? We've got some law enforcement officers here watching who raises their hands. That's good. Thank you for coming. Uh, let's welcome our other campuses. We've got Cincinnatus and Bainbridge and online. They all join us here at Green. So welcome them by simulcast today. We are grateful to be one church in different locations. Uh, I'm Justin. I get to serve as a teaching pastor. And today we get to wrap up a series we've been doing for 11 weeks. It's Investigating Jesus. And we've been looking at the stories of Jesus in a record by one of Jesus' best friends. This was a guy who was a fisherman who one day met a guy who said, follow me, and for the next three years he did, and his life completely changed, so much so that his friend changed the trajectory of his life. He was willing to live on a deserted prison island for most of his older years because of his best friend. And all of his other friends who also followed this friend ended up giving up their lives because of the difference this friend make, made. 50 years after his friend left, he sat down as an elderly man. He wrote a story about his best friend, and that story is the book of John. And in this story, the first five chapters of it, he includes 11 different narratives, 11 different stories that kind of piece together who his friend was. Because he wanted the world to experience his friend like he had experienced. And for 2,000 years, people like us have read this friend's account and have been changed by it. The last 11 weeks, if you've been with us for that, you've seen that Jesus has done things that no other person could possibly do. He said things that no other person has ever said. And today in this final story, these 11 different stories, it's the 11th story and it's the final one that just kind of puts the pieces together and it's really Jesus imploring people to piece together the evidence. Who is he and what does that matter? And the challenge today in our final story as we look at this is that Jesus is talking to very knowledgeable people. And they don't get it. Have you ever met a really smart person who you're like, I don't know if they have a lot of common sense and if you haven't, then you might be it. You might be them. So I think that's the challenge, is that there is a tremendous difference between knowledge, knowing something, and wisdom. Let, let's do it this way. Knowledge is, someone give me a definition of knowledge. I'm going to question your knowledge if you don't have a definition of knowledge. Okay, yes, something you know. So let's say it's, it's facts, information, and skills. That's knowledge, and all of us have a set of knowledge. But wisdom is defined as putting knowledge into practice. So let me give you a couple examples here. A knowledgeable person knows that exercising regularly is essential for health. Some of you are already chuckling. A wise person exercises regularly. A knowledgeable person knows that education is a pathway to a better life. A wise person is a good student. 
A knowledgeable person knows that seatbelts save lives. A wise person wears a seatbelt. We could keep going all day. But there's a big difference between knowledgeable, knowing, having a set of facts or information or skills, and wisdom, I'm going to do something with it. And the people who lived and experienced Jesus for three years, he implores them on this day that we look at, and he says, guys, you have all the knowledge. You know everything you need to know. But there's still this tremendous disconnect. And unless you can put the pieces together, your eternity is in jeopardy. And so this is so crucial, and I'm so glad you're here this morning because many of you are here because you desire to know more about the Bible and about Jesus. But let me tell you, that's not enough. And today we're going to try to do what Jesus' friend is doing and try to help put the pieces together about Jesus because literally our eternity is at stake. So let's look at our final passage here. John chapter 5, if you open your chair Bible, uh, it'll match the translation I'm using, uh, the New Living Translation, and that's page 856. At all of our campuses, we have chair Bibles somewhere near you in the seat in front of you, and you can take it, and you can take it home if you'd like. There might be some free fireworks within the pages. Maybe not. (laughs) John chapter 5. We're going to look at the last part. So so verse 16 is where we pick up today. If you have one of those Bibles that's a red letter edition, the red letters simply show the words of Jesus, you're going to find that this section we're going to read in John 5 is almost entirely red letters, which means we're not going to get John's opinions about his friend Jesus. We're going to get direct quotes from Jesus himself. And almost our entire passage today is a direct quote from Jesus himself. So this is where you kind of lean in and you kind of pay attention. You say, okay, we've looked at stories about Jesus. We've looked at teachings. We've looked at miracles. We've looked at all these different events in the life of Jesus. But now we're going to look at what Jesus says about himself. And this is the part you kind of, you kind of lean in and you say, okay, what does he say about himself? And John, 16, or John 5 verse 16 is where we start. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. We talked about that last week when he healed the lame man and he did it on the wrong day of the week. You're not supposed to carry your mat and do work on the Sabbath and it was kind of ridiculous. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself, what does your Bible say? This was a huge emphasis of John's writing. John is trying to show us that Jesus isn't a mere man. He wasn't just a really good friend, he wasn't just a really good person, and he wasn't just a really good teacher. He claimed to be something more than that. And John tells us right here that the reason that he was going to get killed is because he had made himself equal with God. This was blasphemy. And you don't do this in first century Middle East Israel because they were very religiously focused. They were very uh, concerned about the reputation of God. They knew that God was one and there was no other. And anyone who claimed to be God or equal with God was a threat to their faith and would face their wrath 
and an execution. And that's the road Jesus is heading down. So now we get the words of Jesus. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. You know, sometimes when, when you're talking to someone and you don't believe them and they're like, listen, I honestly, or I'm, I'm telling you the truth. It means, listen, I, I, you got to trust me on this. Like, I don't know how to say this any more clearly, but you've got to believe me. And Jesus is like, listen, I'm just going to tell you the truth right here. I'm going to lay it out for you in black and white. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Okay, you and I read that, and to us that's not controversial. To us that's not explosive because we consider God our heavenly Father, and so we call him our father. That's a new relationship that Jesus introduced. He said we could become siblings of him and children of Father God. But that's not the way a Jewish person viewed God. They didn't view him as a father. They didn't view themselves as his son. No one had the right to claim that other than someone who was equal with God. And so by Jesus doing this, he is, he is really dropping some stuff that he knows is going to cause a huge reaction. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Who, for the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. Now let me ask you, does heavenly father love you as his son or daughter? Okay, either you're not awake or you're in trouble here. Does the father love you as a son or daughter? Has he shown you everything he does? I wish. I'd love that. So here Jesus is claiming something that no one else can claim. He's saying that he literally has the inside scoop on God. Everything God does, Jesus knows about. Jesus is privy to the plans of God. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will be truly astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. Jesus has never been clearer. He's never been more firm about this than right here. I tell you the truth. Here he goes again. I tell you the truth, right? He's looking him in the eye. There's these religious folks right there looking at him saying, listen, you're, you're a heretic. You're claiming to be God. And Jesus is like, listen, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have what? Eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. Have you ever been to a cemetery? Maybe there's a loved one there. Have you ever talked to that loved one? 
Sometimes you might. You might talk to them because you miss them and you're trying to connect with them in a way. It's, it's therapeutic, perhaps. Let me ask you, if you ever did that, did they listen to you? Did they talk back? If they did, would you have been terrified? And Jesus is like, I literally have the power to talk to people in the graves and they will listen to me. And he proved that about two years after this when he went to the funeral of one of his friends who had been dead for days, was already rotting, went to the door of the grave and told him to come on out and end the funeral. And his friend got out, walked out. And it stunned everyone. Jesus says, my voice is so powerful. I can talk to dead people and they come back to life. I don't care how amazing of a person you think you are. I bet you've never claimed to be able to talk to dead people and they talk back or they hear you. Verse 26, the father has life in himself and he has granted that same life-giving power to his son. Now check that out. What is Jesus now claiming for himself? Whose power does Jesus say is his power? He's making no bones about this. You cannot mistake this. If anyone thinks that Jesus was a good teacher but never claimed to be the son of God, have them read John 1, have them read John 5. It's unmistakable what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm privy to all of God's plans. I have access to all of God's power. And he has given him, and now he goes beyond all his plans and all his power, verse 27, and he has given him authority I was reading last night in my, in my time with God about Jesus' interactions with, with Pilate. And Pilate's like, don't you, don't you want to defend yourself? You're about to be crucified. I have the authority to kill you. And Jesus just looks at him and he's like, you don't really have the authority. Like the only authority you have is what God gives you. And Pilate's like, I don't know how to handle that. Jesus just claimed the authority of God for himself. And then he says, don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead's in their graves, so not just Lazarus and not just certain dead people, when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Okay, that sounds like it's a movie plot. Graves popping open all across the world, and everyone come walking out, and they're not zombies, but they're humans. What in the world? And that's a day that's going to happen someday when Jesus comes back and his voice is going to bring everyone out of their graves. Everybody. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. There's a second death. There's eternal life and there's a second death. And every single person will answer to the voice of Jesus long after they've died, will come out of their graves, and then will have to be accountable to him for whether they get to go live with him or whether they're judged for eternity. And Jesus then says this, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me. And then he adds these words, not my own will. A couple years later, Jesus would utter those same words in prayer as he's in a garden about to be betrayed, about to be tortured, and about to be crucified. And as he's praying to his father, he's, he's in such anguish that he has a, a, a medical condition where your capillaries burst under extreme stress and pressure and you began to sweat blood. I've been in anguish, but I ain't never sweat any blood. Jesus did. 
And that was his anguish of saying, God, I'll do what you want me to do. I know the, I'm part of this rescue plan, and that's why I'm here. I'm on mission, and I'll carry it out. But here's the thing. I think often when we read that, we assume that Jesus was in great anguish because of the physical torture he was about to experience. He was about to experience humiliation, stripped naked. He was about to experience a, a, some, some huge thorns slammed into his cranium. He was about to experience whipping that tore his flesh apart, and then crucifixion on top of it. That's enough to anguish anybody. But what Jesus was going to experience that was far worse than that is he was going to, on himself, take all of my lies, all of my immorality, all of my greed, and all of my arrogance on himself. And for him, that was far greater anguish than the physical stuff he was going to experience. You imagine when you and I carry the shame and the guilt of our sin, our private sin, that weighs us down, the baggage that we carry from previous relationships and previous choices, and, and it feels heavy, and you struggle, and, and many of us have had sleepless nights because of the weight of that stuff. You imagine Jesus taking all of that in one moment on himself and the weight of that? And so Jesus is like, that's why I'm here I'm going to do something. I'm going to take something on myself that the world can't carry. And it's all of their sin. Verse 31. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me. And I assure you that everything he says about me is true. So when you're going to a job interview, they're going to listen to everything you say about yourself. What are your strengths? Well, I'm really good at, right? And you tell them all your strengths. What are your weaknesses? Well, my weakness is that I work too hard and I care too much. Okay, can we talk to some references? Right? I need someone to tell me your real weaknesses because you're clearly not being honest. So we, we, it's, it's normal in a hiring process. You always talk to someone's references and you find out more about them. And Jesus says, look, if I just tell you about myself, you're not going to believe me, but I have witnesses. I have, I have references and they've told you the same thing. Verse 33, in fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so you might be saved. He's like, I've gone to so much trouble to, to send my cousin John, the baptizer, as one of my references. I've gone to all this trouble to convince you of who I am, to share with you my identity. And it's not because I need anything from you. It's because I want something for you. And that is the mark of a really good leader, is that they don't need anything from the people they're leading. They don't need their approval. They don't need, they don't need their, their appreciation. They don't need their whatever it is, their resources. They just want something for them. And Jesus was the ultimate secure leader. He says, I don't need anything from you. I want something for you. What's interesting about Jesus' relationship to us what is it that Jesus needs from us? I think you're silent for the right reason. That's the answer. There's nothing. There's nothing he needs from us. There's nothing he needs from a single person on earth. Jesus' relationship with us is very much of a gift-based relationship. 
I don't need anything from you, but I want you. I want you to be my kid. I want you to be my friend. I want to rescue you. I want to change your life. I want to save you. I have no need of anything from you, but you have a lot of need of stuff from me. And that's why when we do the Lord's Supper, whether that's here or whether that's in our clue meeting lunches or whether that's in our small groups, when we gather over food and, and we partake of, of food and, 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 and the bread and the, and the juice and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, when you come to the Lord's Supper, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you're bringing? You're bringing Nothing. That's what makes the Lord's Supper so powerful is every single person who comes to the Lord's Supper is on the receiving end. We're taking and we're eating. We're taking and we're drinking. I don't bring anything. I receive everything. And that's a picture of the gospel. I have nothing to give. I have nothing Jesus needs. It's him giving me his goodness. It's him giving me his forgiveness. It's him giving me himself. And I am purely on the receiving end of that. There's nothing that I give to him. And that's kind of why people are hanging on Jesus' words, the people who got this, is they're like, I need everything he has to give me. He didn't need anything from me. Look at verse 35. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. I mean, John was a crazy guy. He wore camel hair. He ate weird insects. He was, there'd be a documentary about him if he was alive today. Let's put it that way. There'd be a reality show about John the Baptist. And thousands of people followed him, and he baptized tons of people. But Jesus was really different than John. There was nothing big about his personality. There was nothing amazing about the way that he dressed or any of that. What drew people to Jesus is his teaching. It was unlike any teaching they'd ever heard before. But it was also the things that Jesus did. The audience, when they'd go to hear Jesus, wouldn't just hear an amazing teaching. They would usually see him do things that weren't possible. They'd see the laws of nature get suspended. When Jesus would talk to a mute person, the mute person would talk back. When Jesus would talk to a deaf person, the deaf person would hear him. When Jesus would talk to a lame person, the lame person would get up and walk. When, when Jesus would talk to a blind person, all of a sudden they'd see. When Jesus talked to a dead person, they'd walk out of their grave. When Jesus would, would walk on land, it was normal, but then he started walking on water, and yeah, that wasn't too normal then or now. And Jesus kept repeatedly just breaking the laws of nature doing things that no one can do. And Jesus did so repeatedly, and he did so publicly. And there were no tricks or illusions in what Jesus did. When Jesus healed people, they stayed healed. When Jesus calmed storms, they stayed gone. And so all of the pieces are coming together, and now Jesus gets really, really clear here and really specific. Verse 37. Well, 36 first. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles... You've heard me and you've seen what I've done. The Father gave me these works to accomplish and they prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And yet, you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me. 
the one he sent to you. Okay. If the people Jesus was talking to were angry a minute ago, they're furious now. Because up till now, they're really upset that he broke their rules for Sabbath and he told a guy to carry his mat. That was last week. But now Jesus is looking at them and saying, guys, you've seen me and you've heard me. I've been public for a little while now. You're not putting the pieces together. You know all the right stuff, but none of it seems to be making a difference. And I'm telling you, you have this message, but it's not in your hearts. You don't believe me. And here's why this is earth-shaking for us. Here's why. The people that Jesus was talking to here, I know we think of them as religious zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. We think of them as, as people that were nothing like. But the truth is that if these people were alive today, they would be our allies. They were the theologically conservative, guardians of the truth, protectors of the family. We would be the theological allies of these people. We would be the political allies with these people. These are our people. Most of us are pretty conservative theologically, maybe even politically. These are our people. And when Jesus calls them out, it's infuriating to them. Because they're like, we have not compromised. We have not gone liberal. We have not compromised your word. We have not compromised the message. We have stood on the truth that Moses gave us. And Jesus, looking right at them, says, I'm bothered by what I see. I'm bothered by what I see. There's a problem. And then he says what to me are some of the most haunting words that Jesus ever said in his life. Verse 39. You search the scriptures. Now listen, if Jesus showed up here on a Sunday morning and here we are and we're, what's the name of our church? Berean Bible Church. And we're here and we're studying the Bible, and we do it every week, and we do it during the week, right? And, and Jesus comes in and he says, you search the scriptures, and we'd cut him off, and we'd be like, you're right, we do. We sure do. And we'd be waiting for him to say, way to go. We'd be waiting for him to say, they don't. The world doesn't. Compromisers don't. But you do. You're people of the word. You're Bereans. You study the scriptures to make sure that these things are so. And we'd be so proud that Jesus notices that we study the scriptures. When he came to people just like us, and he said, you search the scriptures, it wasn't a compliment. Believe it or not. Look at what he says next. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. We're going to come back to that in just a minute, but let's finish the chapter. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you've rejected me. Yet yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. And now Jesus really turns the screws. Now he really hits home. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. 
Ooh, what's the name he drops right now? Moses. Who was the leader they, they respected more than any other leader in, in, in history? Moses. He was the quintessential leader, the one who led them out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land. They loved Moses. Moses gave them the first five books of their scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those were written by Moses. Moses was the guy they respected. And Jesus here turns to them and says, Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses in whom you've put your hope. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Okay. Do you see how haunting this got at the end of Jesus' statement? Go back to verse 39, because I don't want you to miss this. You search the scriptures, not a compliment because of how he finishes the sentences, because, sentence, because you think they give you eternal life. I, I distinctly remember my high school graduation. It's over 20 years ago now. I feel old. But I remember the pastor as he was looking at us graduates. He knew we were, we were homeschool kids. He knew we were Bible kids. We grew up in the church. We loved the Bible. And his message to us that day was on biblical idolatry. And you say, okay, biblical idolatry. So it's, idol- it's, it's making idols out of things. Not quite. His message was about making an idol out of the Bible. And I remember it because it was so shocking when he looked at us and, and we're like, okay, we're, we're trying to do things right. We're trying to live in purity. We're trying to follow God. We're, we separated from the world. We're not compromising our beliefs. We're, we're pure in our private lives. And he's like, guys, watch out for biblical idolatry. Watch out that you idolize this book. And I grew up in the vein that, you, of course you idolize this book. This is the word of God. This is, this is life. Amen? Some of you are scared to say anything right now. You don't know where this is going. He said, but listen, listen. This book isn't an end in itself. This book is given to lead you somewhere. And be careful that you don't love this book more than you love the author. I remember sitting there like, I don't get where he's going. I think he's a heretic. It took me about three more years to get it. Three more years of loving this book. Three more years of thinking I was doing all the right things, and I was. But I think Jesus would have looked at me like he looked at the people, knowledgeable people in his day and said, you're missing the boat. You're searching the scriptures. You're, you're, you're in love with the word of God, but the word of God was meant to draw you into a relationship with me, and you're missing that. You're missing that. You're so knowledgeable, but it's not dropping the 18 inches. And you've probably heard that many people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. It's all here, but it's not dropped here. Someday he's going to Stand before, he calls everyone out of their graves and all these people are going to stand before him who are religious people, theologically conservative people, non-compromised people, and they're going to stand before him ready to go to heaven and Jesus is going to be like, I don't know you. And be like, what are you talking about? I've done all these things for you. I've followed you my whole life. And Jesus is going to be like, I, 
you know what, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Depart from me. And that's going to be one of the most shocking moments for many people who loved the scriptures. They're like, what are you talking about? You don't know me. I know you. You know about me, but you don't know me. And there's a difference. I was, I was trying to think through this this week, and I was thinking, okay, imagine if, imagine if you came over to my house and you saw on my counter uh, this graduation invitation. You said, oh, oh, Evan's graduating. That's awesome. I'm like, yeah, isn't it great? Like, yeah, are you going? You're like, uh, what do you mean going? You're like, well, you got his invitation. I'm like, yeah, and isn't it beautiful? I mean, have you seen his picture? It's a great picture. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, but are you going? Uh, I don't know. When is it? It's right on the front. The date is right there. Yeah, and do you notice they use Times New Roman and it's in bold? And I actually got a magnifying glass out, and that is high-quality printing. You'd be looking at me like, what is wrong with you? You're like, did you RSVP? Uh, no, but, but their phone number's here, and that is a good phone number. Look at that. Look at all those numbers. They're, they're, I think those are God's favorite numbers. And you'd be so confused. And I'd say, did you know there's more? It's two-sided. And, and look at on this side. It, is there some information about him? And man, there's another great picture. And you, by, by now, you'd be slapping me in the face. Are you going? Like, you know what? I don't think I have time. I need to study this more. Well, what about that day? Well, that day, I think I'm going to stay home and just study the invitation more. Because it's, I mean, it is quality. This cardstock, it's thick. I've never seen one this thick. That's the best invitation I've ever seen. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? But I think our danger is we do the same with the word of God. We get so caught up in how rich and deep and powerful it is. And Jesus is sitting there as we're reading this and he's like, and we're like, no, 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 no. This is too cool. This is too amazing, and I'm going to do it. She's like, uh, it's an invitation. It's an invitation into a relationship with me. Are you coming? I don't know. I got to keep studying this. Okay, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. It is very possible to love the word of God more than we love the author. And I know that because I did it. I lived that life, and I remember distinctly the day when finally I came face to face with the emptiness of my goodness. And I remember that night in college on the floor trying to talk to God, and I felt like he wasn't there, and I'm like, I don't get it. I'm doing all the right things. I'm studying the Bible. I'm preparing to be a pastor. I don't get why I feel so distant from you. And I remember that night because it was the night that I finally said, all right, all right. 
I surrender my heart. You've had my head. I surrender my heart. And it was almost like getting saved all over again. Right? I had been a Christian. I had been a follower of Jesus. But I had made it so cerebral. I had made it so academic. I had made it so what I can do and say that's right. How I can be in the word of God. And it was robotic. And I was missing the very heart of what Jesus had invited me into. And that day was the day that Jesus taught me that scripture informs, but Jesus transforms. I am not devaluing scripture for you here today. I am so glad we're a Bible church, and I am so glad you and I are people of this book. But don't ever forget that scripture is trying to take you to Jesus. It's trying to take you somewhere. And many times I get so caught up here with knowing and doing and saying all the right things that I miss the invitation to come to Jesus. There was a guy alive during the time of Jesus who was one of those very knowledgeable very powerful men. And he made it his life's mission to follow God and to stamp out anything that was off base. His name was Saul. And one day, Saul met who? He met Jesus. And his life flipped. He went from a Jesus-hating terrorist, terrorizing Christians, to a true follower of Jesus. And here's what Saul, after he became Paul, said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. That phrase, in Christ, is confusing because how do I do that? What does that look like? Being in something means you've got to enter You've got to enter into that graduation party, into that relationship, into that friendship, into that home. Being in Christ, it is a relationship that you enter into. And when you enter into that, you are reborn into a new creation. Scripture can inform you, but only Jesus can transform you. You say, but uh, Justin, I still think it's heresy because... This is the truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you're right. My friends, who is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Next week, we're beginning a new series. And it's this, elephants in the room. And we are going to address LGBT issues. And we're like, ooh. We're going to address sexuality. We're going to address drugs, suicide, some pretty heavy-duty, controversial stuff. And people that aren't in Christ are going to be really upset. But Jesus doesn't want to just inform us. He wants to transform us. And so we're going to look at what that transformation is supposed to look like. 
If we truly become in Christ and transformed, there's changes that mark our lives. And they're not changes that I force. They're changes that Jesus produces. And there's a big difference. I could show you so many years of my life where I did all the right things and it was all on my own power and I was exhausted mentally and spiritually. But when I'm in Jesus and I'm operating out of his relationship with me, the change happens naturally, organically, powerfully, not in my power, but in his power. Next Sunday, uh, a good friend of mine is coming to share the message on sexuality. One of the best messages I've ever heard. I said, we will pay for you to come up here to our church to share this message with us. We need to hear this. And again, it's one of those series that we tackle these things that, man, it's controversial, and man, it's hard to accept, but my friend, it puts us face to face with the reality that Jesus isn't just interested in us knowing scripture. He wants our heart. And when he gets our heart, everything starts to change. So let me commend you. You are here at church on a beautiful July 4th weekend. You could be at a lake you could be at a campsite. You could. Now, some of you are like, will you stop it? And I'm not knocking anybody who is. I'm just saying, I think you're here today because you're hungry for Jesus and his word. Would that be fair? And I just invite you, because your eternity is at stake, make sure that you don't just get informed by this powerful book Make sure that you enter into a relationship with the one who wrote it. This is an invitation. It is an invitation into a deeper life. It is an invitation into a different life. And when you know Jesus, when you are in Christ, you get transformed. And then the change doesn't happen outside in like religion always does it outside in. Religion that's forced Change happens inside out. And it's so fun talking to people that get transformed by Jesus because they say, I, I don't know what's happening. I used to use all these four-letter words, and now I just feel bad and not using them like I used to. Well, what's going on? It's not because someone's judging you. It's because someone's inside of you who's starting to change things and starting to clean house. I, I used to think it was okay to do this, and I used to think it was okay to do this, but now I don't know. The more I, the more I know Jesus, the more I'm like, ah, I don't know. He's starting to change my desires. He's starting to change my habits. And that, my friends, is some of the best evidence that you are in Jesus. Scripture is powerful and it informs, but Jesus does what? transforms. Have you let him? It's what he wants to do for you. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, Lord, what a great narrative that John recorded for us and shared with us. Lord, this pleading of Jesus, this pleading to these religious people to please 
put what they know into practice. Please look at the scriptures and come to him. And they were so close. They were so close and, and they just didn't get it. God, I think of when you came to earth and I, and I think of that star that was in the sky and some, some men studied the star and took a tremendous amount of time and resources to, to pursue the star until they met your young son. And we call them wise men because we know that wise people seek you. They pursue you. Lord, I thank you that you are so kind to me that the years that I wasted in a knowledge-based relationship, in a, in a religion that was a facade, you have redeemed and restored for me that time. You've given me a fresh love and relationship with you that is not fear-based, but is forgiveness-based, is love-based. And I can agree with Saul. I, I am a new creation. I don't just know about you. I, I know you. I'm getting to know you more every day. Or that's what I long for for each and every person here. Help us to be in Christ. And someday, rather than hearing, depart from me, I never knew you, Lord. Someday we look forward to seeing your face and hearing you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my everlasting joy. Father, thank you that you've invited us to a relationship that is so good. Thank you that we are partakers, that we bring nothing but receive everything. Lord, you, you obviously changed John's life. It's why he wrote this for us. Thank you that he left behind such a compelling record of your son's life. And as we study him, we find your heart. You are good. You are kind. You are forgiving. We thank you. And it's in your powerful son, Jesus' name, that we pray all this. Amen.